0: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, beautiful people. Uh, Jeremy here from Sick Boy Podcast, and I want to just take a moment to announce... Our next live show, which is happening February 28th, 2020 in Vancouver. We're going to be on the West Coast. Uh, We'll be recording some episodes while we're in town, Uh, but we're also going to be doing this live show. Uh, This will be the uh, third time we've done a show in that beautiful city, and we're really excited to be back. Um, We're going to be doing a show at the Biltmore Cabaret. Uh, It's on Prince Edward Street. Uh, you can get your tickets by heading over to sickboypodcast.com slash shows Um, get your tickets while they're there because they will go fast our last show uh, was quite a hit there was a a large turnout so we're really excited to be back in Vancouver again that is February 28th uh, this year 2020 so head on over to sickboypodcast.com slash shows for tickets can't wait to see y'all
0: And, and, and then I felt super guilty because I put way too much chlorine in the hot tub And Kanye West was like, dude, why the fuck did you put so much chlorine in? I don't know why you would do that I know, it was dumb Anyway, I have been listening to all of these podcasts that I love I love them so much, I don't know what to do I just want to support them And I have no idea how, how to do it I mean, you're a huge podcast fan How, how, do, you, how do you support the podcasts you love? Um, well, I listen to like five shows a week And I support all of them on Patreon What's, what's, sorry, what's, um, what's, what's that? What's Patreon? What do you mean, what is Patreon? You literally ask our listeners to support our Patreon every single episode at the very end. Wait, so, so hold on. Patreon is a way that you support podcasts and creators that you love? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, you can go and you can contribute as as little as like five bucks or as much as like $500 on a monthly basis. No shit. So anybody who loves Sick Boy could go to our Patreon page that we have news to me and they could contribute whatever amount they want and get awesome shit in return for that that's exactly what it is and honestly if you say that you love Sick Boy but you don't support us on Patreon do you really love the show that's a very good point Brian where so where do you go like what is the thing is there a link is there a, a URL I think it's called what, where would you go for that it's very easy all you have to do is go to www.patreon.com slash sickboy sorry Could you you say that one more time? That's www.patreon.com slash sickboy. Come again? That's com slash sickboy. Dude, you're making me feel really self-conscious about my essays. Yeah, plus it's 2020. I don't think you need the www. But anyway, that's amazing. Now I know. Sweet. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast that talks about what it's like to be sick this week's guest is Dina, and she shares her experiences as a social worker in palliative care. Let's talk about it.
1: Um, well, Brian, I'll, I'll let you handle the, the introduction there. Um, but let's, you know, let's not, we've got some important people in this fucking room. Let's not waste, waste anyone's time. Let's be, uh,
0: let's be sharp. Uh, yeah, so my mom's here, and that's it, and, uh, <laughs> that's all right, so let's get to it. Uh, we have some, some, uh, today's a bit of a special day. We have some members of Parliament with us today. We have, uh, Darren Fisher, we have Andy Fillmore, and Jeff Regan, and we also have, uh, our friend the CEO of, uh, Bionova, Scott Moffat's here. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's a few other people here. I mentioned my mom, but then, uh, we also have some, some great supporters and, uh, listeners in the room as well. Why, Brian? Why are, why are all these people hanging out in our recording studio while we're recording an episode? I just want to say it's, it's for the best reason ever. It's because Halifax is such a great community that we asked these people to be here and welcome our uh, friend Dina, who's come all the way in from Montreal to be on the, uh, the podcast today. And 100% of the people that we asked to be here said yes. That actually is a very special part of the city that we live in. I think it's one of the things
1: that makes it my favorite place uh, Dina, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself to uh, the the audience members that are here with us today but also everyone at home listening
2: Sure so I'm really happy to be here I'm actually very honored to be with all of you. Um, I am a social worker in a large teaching hospital in Montreal. I've got 20 years of experience doing social work in nephrology and... Oncology and palliative care.
0: Nephrology. Yeah, what's yeah. nephrology?
2: Nephrology is the study of kidneys. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: okay. It's a, it sounded. It sounded. I was thinking there was something to do with flowers. You know, like nephro, <laughs> I don't know why nephrology sounds like. <laughs> I was. I was thinking magic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. There we yeah. go. Yeah. No, so
2: it's everything that could kidneys go wrong. are pretty magic though. Yeah, they are magic. Yeah. They like make stuff come out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, that anything that could <clears throat> go wrong with your kidneys that will cause you to either need a transplant or be on dialysis, which will replace what your kidneys are supposed. to to
0: do mm. is what nephrology is. So I, I have wait I, before I, sorry before you get into that. Too, yeah. I forgot to mention that Lauren's uh, here oh, with what's us up? Today too. Hey y'all, what's up, dog? <laughs> yeah, I'm here for Taylor. Uh, for yeah, Taylor. That's, that's right, filling in for Taylor. Yeah. So Taylor is uh, away. Um, he's in Bali right now, um, but uh, we're really happy to have Lauren here. Lauren was uh, Lauren's working with us now. We introduced her on last week's episode. If you're wondering who she is, go back and listen to last week's episode. And uh, and if you're wondering who she is, then now you're not anymore. There you go. Thank there you, Brian. There you go. Thank you, Brian. Uh, <laughs> Dina, I have my first question is,
1: um, so as someone with cystic fibrosis, mm-hmm. every time I go to clinic, the way it works is I sit down mm-hmm. in a room. Yep. And the the respirologist will come in and they'll check my, you know, how are my lungs doing? They'll do I'll blow into a little machine they'll give me my like, PFTs, all that stuff. And then the dietician will come in. They're like, mm-hmm. all right, how are your poops? What are you eating? Uh, is your weight OK? All that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, the the uh, physiotherapist will come in and they'll, we'll, we'll talk about my airway clearance. And the psychologist will come in and I'll mm-hmm. talk to him about, you know, how's my mental health? Am I, feel, am I feeling happy? Am I feeling sad? What's what's going on in my life? Mm-hmm. when all these people come. In, I'm like, yeah, I know what you do.
2: Mm-hmm. I know
1: why you're here. Yeah, I know what you do. I know what we're about to do. Then the so- the social worker comes in and, I- and I'm always like, what? who are you and why are we speaking? And she, al- she has the same kind of reaction. She's like, hey, I, I don't think you need to see me. Uh, we have like a little like small talk and then she leaves. What? why is that social worker coming into the room to speak to me? Or
0: right.
1: at least let me rephrase that. Why, where would I be in a position where that might be really valuable to me?
2: Right. So I'll talk about that answer maybe in the context of my more recent work in oncology yeah. and palliative care. So yeah. why do we go see patients? I mean, typically I will go and meet every new patient that's admitted on our ward with a new diagnosis of a cancer. We all know... Or at least we can put ourselves in those shoes of those people that if you get a diagnosis of a cancer, your life is turned upside down pretty fast. So people are in crisis mode immediately and have like a thousand questions swimming through their minds and fear, bottom line. Um So we do a lot of crisis work in those first days and weeks uh, of the diagnosis. And we also put together kind of a game plan of how are you going to survive this period on treatments. Um, We know that you are not going to be able to work in the next couple of weeks. Right. So people are like, "Uh, I don't have a plan in place for this. Like, I didn't put away $50,000 to get through this. I don't have a cushion. So my job is to look at how they're coping emotionally, but also to... Create a plan of how are they going to cope financially as well mm. to get through this whole process.
0: And and you're not unfamiliar with uh, cancer diagnosis in in uh, in your life, not because you've had cancer yourself, but mm-hmm. um, your husband Elaine, who's here as well with mm-hmm. us, he um, had cancer. Yep. So being a social worker and being kind of privy to that side of it, what was it like experiencing mm. it from um, a husband wife side?
2: Right. So. while um, when my husband was diagnosed, I was actually on a maternity leave uh, and I was still in my old job of nephrology and was taking care of my kids at that point. So we had a four and a half year old at the time, a two year old and a six week old. Um there's a
1: lot of babies, that a lot of babies. <laughs> and that like a espe- lot of especially with that age group like it seems like more than just 3.
2: <laughs> it felt like 10. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. you know, and it would have been fine if he hadn't had cancer. Sure. We were like, "No, we can do this. This is yeah. no problem." And then you throw that into the mix and so we're like, "Oh, this is really going to be very hard." Yeah. So I actually wasn't working at the time which was a blessing because I was home to be able to manage it all, but it was tough. Uh, I can't say that, you know, there weren't some very dark moments where I was like, how are we going to do this? Is this going to work? Is this treatment going to work? Are we going to, is he going to survive? Are my kids going to be okay? So that was really hard. And then my mat leave ended. His treatments ended. Um, It was a tough, tough year. But life picks up again. As we all know, you get your shoes back on and you start walking again. Um, And when I got back to work, my manager came and said, I have an opportunity for you. This was like a month after I came back from my mat leave. Do you want to work in oncology and palliative care? And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't do this. There's no way.
1: Too close to home. Too close to home. Yeah.
2: Too scary. I can't face this. I just finished dealing with this. I thought this was supposed to be over. I I don't think I could do this. Mm. And she said to me, don't decide right away. Give it a bit of thought and come back to me in a week. So thought about it, thought about it. And then I realized in that week that actually I think this is exactly what I need to do.
1: Mm.
0: What was it that made you realize that?
2: So, you know, things happen in your life and then circumstances come along the way at certain key points in your life. Um, and I, there were things during that year of going through the treatments with my husband that were great. He got great medical care. There's absolutely nothing I can say about that. Um, But it was really strange as a social worker. I don't know if it was because I was a social worker, but nobody really asked us at the hospital, like, how are you doing? Nobody checked in to see you've got three kids. Like, what's that like? Or financially, how are you doing? Like all the stuff that I would do as a social worker, nobody came to ask me those kinds of questions. Because they
1: were like, you can do it.
2: Right. You're you're a social worker. You know what you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) You you got it together. Which I didn't really feel like I had it together at all times.
1: You can take you those can off. Take Sorry. Yeah. Can I take yeah, those off? Yeah, just okay, fuck them. Right. Just, you know, just Chuck them. They're just falling. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, so actually, that was kind of what prompted me to say, you know what? I think I need to take this position. A, I need to face what this is all about. Mm. But B, I also think that this is an opportunity for me to do better by patients that I'm going to see mm-hmm. than, was, than I had done for us. Um I had a, it was kind of a way to fix and make something right that I felt needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Um and so when I would go and meet patients, that's what I would do is I'd say, How are you? And like what's life like at home and who's at home and all of that. I
0: think one of the things I hear a lot um when somebody's trying to change uh the way that something's been done for so many years. Is that they come up against resistances or, or blockages in the system that um, doesn't allow them to provide the service that they might want to provide? Mm-hmm. When you made this shift to working in oncology and you had this kind of like, you know, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, where you you saw these like opportunities to to be better, um, was it easy to implement some of those things that you uh, saw as opportunities from the outset, or did you? kind of face challenges when you tried to do that?
2: It's a great question. I don't I don't think I ever felt that there were barriers because I think ultimately ultimately what it comes down to is human connection. I think people when they're at their most vulnerable moments and they're just getting these horrible diagnoses need to know that there are people who are connecting with them as people and not just as patients and not just as, you know, a diagnosis. So I, there were never roadblocks to that because as a social worker, that's my domain is you go and you connect as a, another human being. Um, you know, over time, sometimes you're, you're crunched for time and you have a bit less time for a patient one day. So demands come up. Yes. But by and large, no, I felt I was able to to really focus in on the important things with my patients that I was fortunate
1: so, when you were going through this experience with your husband mm-hmm. um, what what was that process like in fr- like from a as a social worker right. from a social worker 's point of view, right. looking back at that in retrospect like what what um, did did you feel like that that experience went as well as it could have or Were there some gaps there, you know, within within uh, managing that from a social worker's perspective?
2: Yeah. Um, It's funny, you know, I think because some of the staff looking after my husband knew that I was a social worker, they're like, oh, yeah, you can handle this. Take these records and go run down over there and navigate this and figure that out. And of course, that's what I do. So that part, no problem. But again, I still felt like, hey, just because I'm a social worker doesn't mean you get off so easy. How come no one's checking in? There's no psychologist asking, like, what do your kids understand of what all this is about? Or what have you told them? Or how's how are his parents doing? Mm-hmm. Um, or how it, are you doing? Or how are you? How, <laughs> hey, right. Yeah. right? Like There I was with a newborn, mm-hmm. six-week-old, every two weeks for chemo, making, like, baby cereal in the microwave. And nobody thought, or nobody came by, maybe they thought it, but nobody came by to say, like, really like how What? what is this all about when uh,
0: like do you have to see a psychologist when you're going through uh, a cancer diagnosis like I know that my mom has uh, I think she saw mom did you see a psychologist yeah Yeah. so um, is it something that they they recommend 100% of the time or is it like on an as needed basis is that the responsibility of the social worker identifying Mm -hmm. if that's an area that needs to be addressed yeah how does that work
2: so it's not mandatory. Of course, you know, no one's going to see anybody against their will. But my philosophy and most of the people I work with in oncology have the view that if you are a young patient, particularly, not only if you're young, but particularly if you're young and if you've got young kids, you should definitely be seeing a social worker and probably seeing a psychologist. Mm. I think we, we don't do enough to screen for psychological distress. We don't do enough to make sure that people know that the resources are there it's all part of the package that we have psychologists there we may not have enough of them there might be a waiting list but you know people should be made aware of the resources there
1: why aren't they like is that just it's just a just a missing piece that, why aren't
2: there enough psychologists no why
1: why aren't they why aren't people uh, being um, informed well, that's
2: a great question i think um, i think for some people it's not at the top of their minds You know, for me, it would be because I'm part of the psychosocial team. That's my world. But the nurses are so busy with Mm -hmm. figuring out the bandages and the dressings and the fevers and the antibiotics and the prescriptions. They're not always then available in their headspace to be saying, okay, so now what about your mood? Mm. Or tell me how your wife is. Like, I got a pretty distressed phone call from her. She sounds like she's having a really hard time.
0: Mm. It's interesting because like we've... You know, we started when we started this podcast four years ago, we talked about um, strategically releasing episodes that cover a variety mm-hmm. of different topics uh, and illnesses. And and one of the <laughs> things strategically, that, you <laughs> know, it's Strate- <laughs> strategically very light
1: strategy. It was, it was it, there wasn't much it, strategy
0: behind it, it. It evolved over the first year, we'll <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that we talked about a lot was like, we want to shed more light on mental illness. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, we've we've said, like, you know, for the last few years, we're going to do an episode specifically on mental illness at mm-hmm. least once a month. Yeah. Right. Um, but the funny thing and the thing that I talked about at the conference in Banff when, when we met was that, you know, every illness, mm-hmm. um, physical illness has a mental component. illness component yeah. or, or, or mental health component Absolutely. to it at least. So, and, and that became apparent to me in, in, you know, experiencing my mom's, mm-hmm. um, challenges with recovering from, uh, going through cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think that, so when Jer Jer goes and sees his whole team of uh, professionals when he's going into clinic, Mm -hmm. uh, he has to see these people, like a psychologist or a social worker. Um, Should that be a a mandatory requirement when going through um, a physical illness diagnosis?
2: I don't, I think people don't know what they don't know.
0: Or, Or I guess maybe when the question is, is... Should it be mandatory to be informed about correct um, the options for your mental health exactly exactly, and, and is it just is it just not right now because of the you know the priority is treating people based on their physical needs first
2: so definitely the medical stuff takes up a lot of space right and and that makes sense. You go to a hospital because you want to get physically better yeah um, so it 's not always obvious to people that there's resources there for the psychosocial part of things. But I think that we do have an obligation to let people know that resources are there. And, you know, some people will want to see a psychologist over a social worker, and some people want to see a social worker over a psychologist. Sometimes there's a stigma around seeing a psychologist. Some people will say, oh, that's just for crazy people. Like, I don't need that. I'd rather just talk to a social worker, and vice versa. People have bad associations with social workers sometimes. They think, oh, all we do is, you know, take children away and put them in youth protective services, so I don't want to see that person.
1: (laughs) I've seen that movie. Yeah, (laughs) I know how that works. I know how you guys do it.
2: Right. We have our tricks. (laughs) Um, So... But I think the point is that people don't know what resources are out there mm. until we tell them. So it's it's our job to inform them. These are the members of the team. Tell us a little bit what you need. Tell us what, a little bit what's worrying you.
0: How do you do that in a hospital setting, though? Is like is it your responsibility as a social worker to figure out who's in the hospital at any given time and, and right. make sure that your you and your team are going around and seeing all of those people?
2: Yeah. So I work on a hematology oncology unit and we meet once a week with the entire team around a huge table and we develop a game plan for each patient and part of the game plan is we routinely screen for psychological distress with every new patient as I said on the unit when they're getting their new diagnosis or when their disease is progressing and going from okay first line treatment didn't work we're now moving to second line treatment. Uh, they got bad news. This is pretty tough. We need to go in and check up on how they're doing so there's there's I have actually quite a bit of autonomy in terms of deciding who I go see. I can go see everyone, uh, which I d- generally do. so that's mm-hmm. how we we just check in with people mm-hmm. when you when you
0: have those meetings and you're and you're kind of like like oh, I imagine you like almost have this like battle plan like yeah. this huge like uh what is it yeah. what is the table with the military where they like they have that huge table and they have like the chess pieces on it and they're like pushing the pieces forward with a stick Do you know what I'm talking about <laughs> yeah yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. I, right. I kind of imagine you doing that with the. it's
2: a little nicer than that
0: okay <laughs> um but when you're standing around this table that I'm picturing yeah um is there <laughs> are there common things that come up um yes. uh, that are challenges that people are facing yes what are those
2: So, you know, people don't live in vacuums. People come to the hospital with a new diagnosis of any kind of chronic disease with a whole life of history behind them, which includes family stressors, financial stressors, work stressors. Um, So when they come and then on top of it, we give them another diagnosis, another piece of bad news it has this ripple effect on all the rest of their life and all the people who are close to them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that's where my job is, is to sensitize the medical team to what else people are going through. They didn't just drop onto our ward perfectly happy and fine and all of a sudden have a diagnosis. They had a whole life before that.
0: Mm -hmm. I I imagine it it gives me a... I don't use this term lightly, um, but it makes me anxious to think mm. about what would happen in my life right now if mm-hmm. all of a sudden I was incapacitated from an illness. Absolutely. Um, the, one thing that you did
1: mention earlier that I that I am I'm I'm quite curious to kind of dive into because um, uh, you you had mentioned how you know someone gets someone gets diagnosed with cancer. Let's say mm-hmm. they're in their like 30s mm-hmm. and they all of a sudden are now faced with having to uh, go through with uh, you know really intensive chemo and and the, the way you worded it was like oh they didn't they didn't really anticipate that they're going to mm-hmm. have to like have this nest egg mm-hmm. set aside to, right. to to get through this process. Um, it, how does that work? Like <laughs> it, it, is is Canada not a place where it's oh, like right. oh you get can- cancer you need chemo so we'll take care of it for you because we have right. universal health care?
2: So I love that you just said that. Because, in fact, the answer is no. Hmm. Um, you would think we're a first world country, right? So mm-hmm. we surely must have a safety net for all these people, right? We must have this amazing plan. But, you know, our plan has some gaps. Yes, there are some safety nets, but a lot of those safety nets have a lot of limitations too. Um, and so that's what I'd really love to dive into. With yeah. You. yeah. Well, How do people
1: yeah. fall through the cracks in, in that case?
2: So... Okay, before we say that, look, the good news is people are living a lot longer with cancer, right? Mm-hmm. People are surviving their prognosis, their five-year marks. They're, they're going way beyond that. The hard part is is that with living longer, with a chronic illness, you're depleting all your resources. Um, and in social work, we talk a lot about a concept called the social determinants of health. So we know that poverty, living in poverty, leads to higher risks of illness. Mm-hmm. And then if you're living with an illness and you're struggling with your finances, your prognosis tends to actually be worse.
1: Yeah. Well, when we talked to Nahid Dasani, he, uh, he mentioned that your life if, if people who are, are living in poverty yeah. uh, or someone who is considered homeless, yeah. their life expectancy is halved. Yes. Wait, that 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 blew, that blew my mind. Just because
2: they're homeless. Just, ju- that's
1: it. Just that's because right. they're homeless. Not that's because right. they're sick. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so then I add an illness on top of
2: that. A life-threatening illness. Yes, that's right. That, where they can't access meds. They yeah. can't access transport to get to their appointments. They can't access all the extra non-covered, over-the-counter medical supplies, canes, bath benches, etc. Like the list can go on and on. Mm.
1: I mean, we were... Uh, I hope it's okay that I, that I bring this up, Marie, but we were talking about, Brian and I yesterday were talking about the fact that, you know, you had cancer. Uh, you you now, because of your cancer, I rely on catheters to go pee And how much do you spend a month on catheters? About $400. About $400 a month. That's just the catheters. That's just the catheters. And, uh, I mean, luckily you're in a position where, Right now, you can do that for now. Um, but the amount of people out there that would rely on that who
0: can't, that's right, who can just not pay that. Like, what, yeah. my wh- mom wouldn't wh- say this to you, but she can do that, but she also works three jobs. Yeah, In exactly. Order like, to do yeah, that. exactly. She, she can do that, but like, There's to a huge what cost? To what cost? To, right? to her health and yeah. to
2: her physical well being. She's she's having to be super stressed, I would imagine, having to do that. The
1: yeah. people who can't afford it, Right. what happens to them?
2: So. Uh, You know, there are, as I said, there are safety nets. They're not perfect. You know, EI is there to cover half of your salary at the time that you get a diagnosis. Hmm. However, EI only lasts 15 weeks. And I'm sure you know, being sick with any kind of significant illness (coughs) is way longer than 15 weeks. That works if you break an ankle or if you've got, you know, a very short term kind of discrete illness. Hmm. But for most of these chronic illnesses, EI will not cut it. So then we say, okay, well, if this disease is going to last longer than 15 weeks, what can we go to next? The problem is, is that it puts people into kind of a gray zone. So pa- patients are on these long treatment protocols and 15 weeks runs out. The doctor is still hoping for a cure. So they're not willing to say this person is disabled and we're going to put them on CPP or anything like that. Their hope is to get people back into the workforce, which understandable, that's very noble of them. The only problem is it's not them who are paying the bills at the end of the month. Mm. So after the 15 weeks, people then have no option but either to go on social assistance, which is last resort kind of financial aid. Or they have to start liquidating their assets. And I've seen people have to sell their homes, downsize, uh, declare bankruptcy, um, you know, you do what you have to do to pay the bills. Hmm. But peop- an-
0: oh, I'm oh, so sorry to no, cut you no. off. I was just going to ask, do you have any stories, like, concretely that you can share with us of people
2: that have had to do so, those kinds of things? Yeah, I actually, I I was thinking about two patients that I, if I could maybe give, like, little snapshots yeah. of. Is oh that God, okay? Please. Without yeah. being, like, without I love- little snapshots, big I snapshots. Stories. Awesome. All about it, yeah. Okay. So actually, one girl that I worked with at the very beginning of my career in oncology um, was a 19-year-old girl. She's from the Maritimes, and she was living in Montreal. And she was diagnosed uh, with a sarcoma. Um, She was bartending and going to school studying literature. So she... Was working a bit, but didn't have really any kind of nest egg. You know, at 19 years old, you don't have a nest egg. I still
1: don't even know what a nest egg is. Yeah, so thank I, you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I'm 32. Yeah, so. we're waiting also. Yeah. We're almost 15. It's okay. <laughs> but, you know, here she comes, finds herself with a sarcoma, uh, can't work. And actually, she had a boyfriend who was amazing. He had a pretty decent job. Um, But because he had that pretty decent job, she was not eligible for last resort kind of financial aid because she was, you know, working very few hours just part time. Her EI was minimal. So there she is, 19, having to pay rent with her boyfriend, not eligible for last resort, getting very little from EI. And her doctor is saying, I'm going to get you better, honey. You're going to be back at it in a year. (sighs) So she couldn't access CPP. She was in no man's land. Her parents were subsidizing, subsidizing, subsidizing. But, you know, Ugh. that's tough. Yeah, Kids left the nest already. Like they weren't expecting to suddenly have to take all that back on.
0: And it's also like then, then like, you know, what do you do? Stop school at that point? Right. Leave, move back home, move in with your parents? Like what? You know, you you have to give up everything at that point. To... I work with mm-hmm.
2: lots of young adults who have no choice but to move back home with their parents, and so that's that, hard. Is psychologically. that what happened
1: with her specifically?
2: No. So her mother would come back and forth from the Maritimes to Montreal and just help out in whatever way she could right. and help mm-hmm. pay bills, but it was a struggle for all of them.
1: It, it is. It's. It is. It's so interesting to hear this because, like, it's it, that literally is the last thing you think about. Like that, when you, when, when I sit here and think about, you know, what, the what ifs, Mm -hmm. what if I get cancer?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Fucking last thing I'm thinking about is how am I going to financially get myself through that?
2: And nor should you be thinking about that when you're hanging on for life and you get this diagnosis and you're like, okay, game plan. Mm. I got, I have a year of chemo. I've got to do this. The last thing you should be worrying about Mm. is how you're going to pay your rent or making choices between meds and bills or making choices between food and whatever. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Is there, like... Now, now i'm now i 'm sitting here being like panicking it like panic. as as someone as someone is right. someone who is maybe this is a selfish question but uh i'm self employed i'm yeah. self employed yeah. I always have been before I did this I was acting my god that was yeah. that was a hot trash fire let 's not even talk about the the lack of financial support I had there um yeah. uh as someone who's self employed like what are some
0: things that like well, Jira, sh- I just I, like I, I hate to interrupt. I know you're going to ask a question, but like you've been in the hospital for mm-hmm. like yeah. months at a time, and yeah. and like one of your main sources of income is traveling around and speaking. And, yeah. and if you can't do that, then like, what has that been like for you?
1: Uh, it, well, it is rough. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. Like I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I missed out on a on on a gig in November because mm-hmm. I was hospitalized for mm-hmm. pneumonia, and yep. uh, th- th- you know. I, I don't, I, I don't want to complain about it because I'm, I'm, I feel okay. Mentally, I feel like I'm doing okay. But like that did put the next five months from there into mm-hmm. kind of like, a oh no, what do I, mm-hmm. I gotta like, yeah. I gotta start juggling a little more yeah. to kind of make ends meet. Um, but yes, I guess, so I guess my question is. Help me. What do I do?
2: Right. So I'm really glad you asked that. So we, we, okay. So we touched a little on the young adults. The other two groups of our society that are kind of vulnerable are exactly those people. So mm. people who are a bit older who are self-employed. So mm-hmm. those people, actually, it's very difficult for them to pay into EI. When you're self-employed...
1: Yeah, I tried it once.
2: It doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and
1: it, it really, it was like, it was an impossible process. Right.
2: So self-employed people are very vulnerable people who are um, kind of in that 55 to 63 age group where, like, they get sick. They weren't planning to retire so soon. They needed to work those extra few years, Mm. and then they get a diagnosis and they can't work, and yet their retirement pensions are going to be really low because they didn't completely max them out. Those people are vulnerable. And then, of course, there's people over 65 who are on a very fixed income and suddenly have huge expenses, Mm. So their income cannot change. After the age of 65, whatever you're making is what you're making, right? You're getting an old age security. You're getting a provincial pension. And that's as much as you're going to pretty much get. Those people, when you then add on medication, transport, uh, all the uncovered stuff that we talked about a little bit before, when you add all that together, you're creating a perfect storm. You've got a fixed amount of resources with way more expenses.
0: So you're talking about specific populations right now, but like in terms of the people who are who are getting sick, I, I know that yeah. illness doesn't discriminate, but yeah. like what portion of people that are getting sick are facing these challenges? Like, is it a small portion of the people that get sick or is it a, a much larger portion than we would imagine?
2: I think it's, a, I would say it's a much larger portion than we would imagine. If I look at You know, if I just take the small sample of the ward I work on, where we have 24 patients coming in for leukemia treatments and stem cell transplants, almost, I would say, 20 of them have financial issues of some kind. Mm. So it's
0: 20 of 24,
2: I would say.
1: Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break Know someone who might be struggling with their mental health? You can help. As a listener of Sick Boy, you know that we've been having these types of combos forever now. You'll also know that sometimes we make mistakes, and that's okay. We're human. Supporting someone through struggle in their life isn't easy, it's an art, not a science, and we all make mistakes. That being said, we can do our best to prep by educating ourselves. And our friends over at Jack.org have created a resource for just that. Check out BeThere.org for more information. Let's create a world where we can all better support one another. What are, do you, like, do you see from your point of view um, any any ways in that this can be like how, how what what can be done to change that? You know what can be done to seal up those cracks that people are falling through. Yeah, um, is there anything from like you know from the federal government standpoint that can mm-hmm. be done to to relieve that financial burden?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think a few years ago, actually not too long ago, uh, the Liberal government came in and revamped the Compassionate Care Leave Program. So that's a program where...
0: Compassionate
1: Care Relief Program? Exactly. Okay.
2: So when you have a patient or a loved one who's going through kind of an end-of-life diagnosis um, and they're in hospital for care, or even if they're at home, Uh, a loved one or a friend can be relieved from their work responsibilities in order to look after them. And they'll get 55% of their salary for a bunch of weeks. It used to be six Mm. weeks. And then the liberal government, as I said, came in and really upped it quite nicely, quite generously uh, to, I believe it's now 26 weeks. So that's a huge, huge jump. Where I struggle a bit is that the patients themselves who get a new diagnosis are only getting 15 weeks of ei so while i completely huh. appreciate the generosity so the it,
1: so the care right now the caretaker correct so in my case it would be my Righty. wife right my caretaker would get would get 26 weeks mm-hmm. covered mm-hmm. of 50% of her salary right um and i would receive
2: Fifteen. Fifteen. <laughs> Correct. Uh, how does... Right. I mean,
1: that does sound very sweet for Bridie. It's
2: great for Bridie. Yeah. You're out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. R- right. So that's a really kind I'm, of I'm just hard pu- one. I'm
0: puzzling right now. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 why, I, though? Sorry, I, I why? I don't
2: know. That's the question. That, I mean, I guess
0: I would guess why is because, you know, they're looking at, you know, it, it is kind of like a puzzle, right? Like you mm-hmm. have this one piece mm-hmm. It there's... There's not enough support in this one area. They look at it; they increase the support. You know, right. they yeah. support the the caregivers,
2: which is amazing. Which is a Again, positive thing, right? It's a, it's and fantastic. It's,
0: it's not that that's a bad thing. It's, it's just that, that we got to catch up. We got to yeah, right, exactly. So yeah. it's like oh, there's an area for improvement by supporting financially the people that's who are right. actually going through the illness that's too. That's right. And you know the point that you brought up earlier, like 15 weeks, it, if, it, it helps yeah. and it helps for somebody who like you said, maybe broke a leg or something like that. But like mm-hmm. a lot of the illnesses that people go through have a much longer, um, recovery period than 15 weeks alone. But like what about the people that don't have a family caretaker?
2: Well, that's a great question. You know, those people are much more socially isolated yeah. and need social workers even more need the whole team to be mm. able to support them even more. Um, they're, it's much harder for people to go through any kind of chronic illness. You know, Mm. I'm coming at this from an oncology point of view, but all of this would apply to anybody with any kind of illness. Um, but like would this
1: would this same thing apply to it? like if I mm-hmm. you know I become end stage in the next year and I need a double lung transplant mm-hmm. is it is it the same yes the same thing
2: yeah hmm. I mean there is also um, in addition to compassionate care benefits there's also a caregiver relief program so Brighty would again benefit but. Mm -hmm. you would still only get the 15 weeks. Mm. And, you know, there's been, um, I was in preparation for all this, I was looking at some documents and they've done some feasibility studies to look at what would it cost to actually... I
0: am really curious about that because, like, there's a lot of things that would be great to have, but it's like, to what cost, you know? People have to pay for this and... and how much does it cost? Right. That is the question, right? So
2: can we talk about that? Yeah. Sure. Okay, because I've got No, no, actually, numbers. that's all, we have. <laughs> no, that's all the here. time that we have for we're gonna, today. We're going to move on. <laughs> okay, so right now, just to give everybody an idea, we pay $1.66 per 100 hours of insurable earnings to be able to give people the 15 weeks of EI. Okay, that's how the calculation works.
0: $1.66 per dollars
2: per $100. $100 of insurable earnings. Okay. Okay? To get it to where we should be, which is I would say, you know, the, the studies really show like thirty weeks is really adequate coverage for right. a, a serious illness. So I think double
0: what it is what much. it is now.
2: Yeah. It would only cost a dollar seventy four per hundred hours of insurable earnings.
0: So eight cents more.
2: Correct. Right.
0: Okay. So for eight cents we would be getting double the amount That's right. of Care. That's right. How much money does everyone in this room have in their
1: pocket right Let's now? Pull like, it out. If, we, if we put it all <laughs> on the table, that's enough. We've, We've got, got to it. figure it <laughs> out. It's right. You heard it here first, folks. Sick boy podcast. We figured it out.
2: <laughs> Can I just say that ninety countries around the world offer twenty six weeks, like flat out, or as long as people need till full recovery. Yeah. So we're at fifteen. I, you know, as a as a first world country, again, we. We need, at the very least, we need to be at par, but really, we should be leading in mm-hmm. terms of the example that we set around the world for this. So, this is something that I think is really important. You know, as the basic safety net for working Canadians, I think we need to do better.
1: Mm. What are, I mean, you're here talking to us mm-hmm. um, uh, with all these lovely people that have taken the time to sit with us. Mm-hmm. What else are you, are, are you doing? Anything else? In in your line of work to 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 cultivate that change or to, to push that change forward, like who are the le- who are the who are the people that are really pushing for this?
2: Well, I mean, I, there is a woman in Quebec who herself was a, a cancer patient. I believe she had a thyroid cancer, and she was pretty proactive in trying to move some of this change along. Um, but I think a lot of people just say, you know, this is the status. Quo, this is what it is you got to make lemonade with lemons mm. I say mm, maybe not maybe we can look at this maybe we can make this better I you know there are there are examples to follow around the world and I think we're I think we're there I think we have to look at this who
1: who is like the the lead like in terms of countries around the world like who's doing it who's doing it
2: Who's doing it? Um, and there doing are it well. some. Part, were we and doing it well. And doing it well. Yeah. There's some countries in Europe that are way ahead of us. Yeah. 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 So.
1: Coming back, just, you know, there is some something that we kind of glossed over a little bit that I think would be uh, valuable to hear because I know a lot of our listeners are, um, the majority of our listeners are like, you know, 24 to mm-hmm. 34. Mm mm-hmm. um, What what can what can younger people Mm. who are healthy do uh, to to kind of prepare themselves Mm -hmm. financially in case in case they do get not not in case they get sick when they get sick because it's honestly it's going to happen. That's right.
2: Everyone's going to get something. A- everyone
1: gets something at some <laughs> right. point, you know. Um, Isn't the stat now like one in two people are going to get cancer? Yeah, so
2: actually I have some stats. So if we, if we all right. lived,
1: yeah, if we all lived long it's, enough, we would all get it. Yeah. We would all get cancer.
2: So 2019 Canadian Cancer Society stats say that one in two people is going to get cancer in their lifetime. So Whoa. in, two, that's, that's in 2019, there's 220,400 new cases of cancer. Um, but as in I s-
0: 2019, there's 220,000 new cases. That's right. In Canada. That's right. Well. Wow.
2: yeah. That's a lot of people. That's with a cancer. lot of people.
1: So yeah. if you're listening to this right now and you're, you are, you don't have cancer it, flip a coin, and <laughs> and if you got bed they're, they're, yeah, and yeah, and there's there's a very high chance that you're going to get cancer. Now, not this is not a fear mongering podcast, but I'm
0: gonna I'm I'm gonna try to put some inject some fear into you right now to because prepare to you. prepare you. I mean, the exciting thing is that we are like probably building the relatability of this podcast with our <laughs> listenership, like like mm. quite quickly. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh,
1: what can someone yeah. do to to kind of financially prepare themselves?
2: Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times I will meet a 23-year-old and they have nothing put aside. They're, they weren't expecting this whatsoever. Um, and I th- when I think about it a little bit, what it brings me back to is financial literacy. I th- can't tell you how many times, you know, I have heard, oh, well, I didn't, I, I didn't think at 30 that I needed to have life insurance. I'm still healthy. Like, what am I worrying about at 30 about getting sick and dying? Um, that's actually exactly when you should be getting life insurance is when you're young and healthy. Uh, and you pay less for it, and right? Exactly. You pay way less because you have no risk factors when you're 25 and running around traveling the world and happy and healthy. It's when you get to 35 and you get a cancer and then you're stuck because you can't get insurance for five years. So oh, wow. that happens to a lot of people. Um we also hear a lot of, well, I didn't know that mortgage insurance would have helped me cover my mortgage when I just bought my house six months ago and now I have cancer. Yeah. So I think we have a bit of educating to do with young adults. And I wonder if <coughs> we need to try to do that like, <coughs> even as people are entering the workforce, like at the around the age of mm. 18, 19, we should start to we need to have some kind of um, an effort at the, maybe at the school levels, but just to educate and prepare people to know what are the kinds of things you should be thinking of in the next five years. Mm.
0: Is there, um, is there systems or services in place for some people that just aren't being accessed because they don't know about them? Like um, one of the things I, I wonder about uh, my mom's catheters is we're using mm-hmm. for an example, like, you know, is there ability an ability for her, you know, it's it. obviously she, I think she's tried to a certain extent to mm-hmm. find ways to get them covered, but like, and this is just one example, but like is there an ability perhaps through some system or service that something like that could be covered? It's just that mm-hmm. access is hard to get to?
2: So in our hospital, we have um, nurse pivots like they're, um, how can I say that? It's, they're kind of like the center point of, your, of navigating all of your care related to your cancer diagnosis. Um, they're the pivotal point that communicates with the doctors and the rest of the team.
1: Like the nurse coordinator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: So those nurses should be the ones to help patients access those programs. The problem with those programs is you have to have an established permanent need. For whatever the medical supply is, if it's not a permanent need, there's absolutely no coverage. And even when there is a permanent need established, it's a very small amount. So I know for, for example, in Quebec, uh, for colostomy supplies, if it's not a permanent colostomy, you won't get any coverage. If it is, you'll get something like six or seven hundred bucks per year, which is not a lot. And if you need, like, frequent changing of the bags and of the dressings, you're running through that stuff like water. Mm. So that $600 really doesn't get you very far. So it's tough. It's really tough. And that's where all the out-of-pocket expenses come into play with a very fixed income. And people then have to make tough choices.
1: Mm. I feel so uh, lucky Mm -hmm. to live here in Nova Scotia Mm -hmm. um, because... As a patient with cystic fibrosis mm-hmm. uh, i I oh man, I broke down one day the amount of dollars that I ingest daily uh, through medications. Mm-hmm. I take about like forty pills a day and um, and two other treatments of liquid medicine that <clears throat> I inhale and it's it's an astronomical amount of money um, but since I've lived in Nova Scotia, which has pretty much been my entire life i I haven't paid out of pocket once.
2: That's incredible.
1: It is. And, and, and I, and I acknowledge and I realize that that is a, like a very fortunate place to be, but also realize that that, that is, that may not be forever. That Mm -hmm. might not be something that, you know, I have, I have the fortune of, of, um, of having in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, What's really funny is what, my wife and I, we moved out to B.C. to open a yoga studio uh, a few years ago. And I was like, D-. you know, talk about financial Ill- illiteracy. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, we went out to B.C. and I was like, like, yeah, I'm going to go out there and get all start this new life on Salt Spring Island. And then I arrive and they're like, oh, right. You're going to like, you know, you're going to be paying about fourteen, fifteen thousand 15 thousand dollars a year for meds that aren't covered we cover some of them but not all these other ones that you're taking mm-hmm. and going from like paying zero dollars a year to that it was like wait what w- what, what 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 right
2: i, don't I thought somebody.
1: this was like <laughs> coast to coast i thought this was you know mm-hmm. canada wide mm-hmm. no it varies varies differently from province to province mm-hmm. anyway long story short we didn't stay there we came. Yeah. <laughs> we came back here this is why i love halifax so much <laughs> um uh but yeah like i i am to, i am very fortunate to be in that situation but there's mm-hmm. there are people in my life that I know who aren't so fortunate mm-hmm. who have to pay out of pocket for yep. catheters or you know um, yeah
2: and sometimes it's even people who you would think have better coverage actually end up paying more so people who are covered with private drug insurance plans mm. actually have huge out of pocket expenses to play upfront for their meds and they have mm. to wait to get reimbursed so they're constantly in this Push and pull with money coming in and out of their accounts, and it's it's stressful because if they have to put a thousand bucks up front and wait, mm. well, where's where's the rest of the money going to come from in order to pay the rent? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tough. It's really tough.
1: Well, Dina, I want to I want to say you know this is uh, before the mic started. We were kind of talking about how we've been having more of these conversations on the show about. The healthcare system here in Canada, and the the things that um, that aren't working, and the things that are working, and um, I think that these conversations are really vital mm-hmm. to be having, uh, especially to inform the you know the person out there who's listening to this on their commute to work who who isn't aware, mm-hmm. who doesn't know these, these sorts of things, mm-hmm. um, but to also have this conversation um, with. You know the leaders of our community that that help cultivate change. I think is really important too. And so, I want to say uh, on behalf of of Sick Boy Podcast, thank you so much for uh, traveling to Halifax to hang out with us and to have this conversation. Um, and and I also want to extend a you know a massive piece of gratitude to everyone who showed up here today just to just to bear witness and sit and listen and hear. Um, here are the things that you have to share, because again, like I said, these are important conversations and, uh, I don't think change happens until those conversations are, are, are happening. Um, and those conversations really don't mean anything unless there's somebody on the other side listening. So this, I feel really grateful to like be a part of this today. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for that.
2: Thank you for, giving us the voice to be able to say all of this. I had written this email to Brian one day while I was waiting my do- for my daughter to come out of tutoring. I was like, oh, we should really talk about this. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate the the time and the space and everybody coming out to listen to this. Um, and look, if we can get any kind of change out of this to help patients really just focus on their recovery rather than worrying about all the dollars and cents out of, of it. That's really the goal. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, before we, I know that we've had, <coughs> Dina, you and I have had extensive conversation, um, kind of leading up to this. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we um, wrap it up?
2: Um.
0: And I also know that uh, at the same time that this is released, um, we are going to be releasing a, a blog post that you're mm-hmm. writing for us. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to outline some of the information that we've talked about in more detail as well. So, uh, if You, the listener, uh, head to sickboypodcast.com slash blog. Uh, The latest blog post should be uh, Dina's about um, the conversation that we had today.
1: Yeah. Great.
0: Well, let's uh, wrap
1: it up then. Just the normal way we I don't usually know, I, do.
0: I, did I just say like is there anything else that you want to add? And then was like basically it's it's in a blog post. So anyway, see if you, you later. Else you
2: add, get right in. One yeah. hundred percent. I wasn't sure what to do with that. Yeah, um, you can you can
0: talk. You're allowed I to. I,
2: I mean I think we I think, you know, without we we can talk about the nitty gritty of things kind of afterwards, but yeah. um no, I think we pretty much covered it. I I think really again it's just to say that we want our patients just to be able to be as calm and stress-free when they're dealing with their illness and, and just not have to worry about the rent and the hydro and the, Mm -hmm. and the heat. And do I keep Mm. my apartment at 15 degrees or can I put it up to 19? So I'm comfortable. Like those Mm -hmm. aren't decisions I want my patients to be making. Um, We just want people to really focus on getting better.
0: Right. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very
1: much. Uh, Having said that, that is it for this week. I'm Brian.
2: I'm Lauren. I'm
1: Jeremy. I'm Dina. And this is Sick Boy.